And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly, without wavering, to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to, act of, to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Back in May of, of 20, uh, this year, of 2018, Cigna, the insurance company, uh, released the findings from a very large study that they had been doing for quite some time on the idea of loneliness and isolation in America and how it was affecting the health of average Americans. They surveyed uh, 20,000 uh, people and they used a study that was developed by UCLA and the findings from that study were very interesting. They found out that the majority of Americans are classified through diagnostics as lonely. And even worse, 40% of Americans suffer from extreme feelings of loneliness and isolation. Uh, they looked at the, the population by generation, you know, so the, the, the greatest generation, and then the, the baby boomers, and the Gen X guys, and all, all you know, millennials, and they found something very interesting, that the loneliest generation are the people who were born between the mid-1990s and the early 2000s. Uh, so my son, one of my sons uh, falls in that range. So the, the younger generation that is coming up, they suffer the most, apparently, according to these studies. 34% of Americans eat dinner alone. That, that blew my mind. One-third of our country eats dinner alone. But even more telling is that in the census data, you know, the, the most common household in America is married with children. But the second most common household, 30% of our households in America are one person, made up of one person. So almost a third of our homes in America is one individual. And so it's grown to be so significant that the Surgeon General wrote this. He said, loneliness and weak social connections are associated with reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and, and, uh, and even greater than that associated with obesity. I was amazed by that. Uh, economists have studied this for some time in association with the American Psychiatric uh, Association, and they have decided and, and kind of diagnosed a common malady in our country. You see, we are, in a, as a society, very materialistic. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone. And what they have found is that in a materialistic society with people who are, tend to be materialism, there is something that they call now a loneliness loop a loneliness loop. In other words, materialistic people try to solve loneliness and isolation, how? By going and buying things. And so they go, you go and buy something, and, and maybe it's happened to you, you go and buy something, and you have that little brief spurt of, yeah. And you know what, you don't feel as lonely. 
for a little while. But then the loneliness comes back because a thing can never satisfy loneliness and isolation. And so what do you do? You turn around and you buy again and again and again. But what begins to happen is a a vicious cycle of purchasing a little relief, then loneliness, purchasing a little relief, debt, all of that kind of stuff arises out of this. Now, why am I bringing this up? We know we're in a series of messages on our church values. And two weeks ago, we started it, and we looked at the first of our church values, living authentically. But this morning, we're going to look at another very important foundational church value. Uh, Values are those shared convictions that we have as a church, those things that uh, motivate us to do what we do, to do our mission. And so it is behind the mission, and it gives us that, imp- that reason for doing what it is that we're doing. And this value that is obviously, uh, if you've been around here at all for any length of time, this shouldn't surprise you that one of our values is connecting intentionally with one another. Let's read the description aloud together. Read it with me. In a world of isolation and loneliness, we deliberately invite people to experience gospel community with us. How pertinent is this value to our culture and to our society, the way we are? So this morning, I want us to look at this text, and I want to make two gospel applications from it that show how Jesus and the power of the gospel community heals loneliness and isolation, and it's the only hope that our world has from this thing that they suffer from. The first application is in verses 19 to 22, where we see that Jesus opens the doors and the throne of heaven to us, and in doing that, he heals our deepest and our most significant and serious isolation. Sin, church, has disconnected us from our creator. This is the problem with the world. The the one who created us to have eternal community with him, that eternal community has been broken by sin. And as a result of this, loneliness and isolation, they're the byproducts of the sin condition and of this breach of the eternal relationship. But as we read in this text, the gospel, the gospel teaches us that Jesus, he heals this separation and this eternal loneliness. Verse 19, so dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. What does he mean by that? Through the curtain into the most holy place. A new and life-giving way comes through this curtain. Well, let's remember who the book of Hebrews was written to. The author wrote the book of Hebrews to whom? Hebrews, right, Jews. People who were raised in the Jewish uh, culture and the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant. And so he's writing to these Jews, some of whom have made a profession of faith in Christ and they've joined in with the body of believers, others who are seeking and investigating and are looking for answers. And so in the book of Hebrews, he's addressing an issue that's going on in this church. Many of these Jewish believers or people who are looking and seeking, they were trying to synthesize the old covenant under Moses with the new covenant that Jesus had established. 
And so the book of Hebrews is written to show these men and women that the new covenant that Jesus brings about, that Jesus himself is far superior to that old covenant, that the old purpose of the old covenant was to point the way and to prefigure what Jesus does, did for us on the cross and in his resurrection. But what was happening in this church was these men and women were wavering. And so throughout the book, what you see him doing is making allusions and pulling from the Old Testament. And that's what he does here. He's pulling from something that every Jew would have understood. In the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and you had the temple, and it was divided into different rooms and sections. But there was one room that was most special. It was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And in that place was the Ark of the Covenant. And we all have our picture of the Ark of the Covenant because of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but you understand that this was uh, the, the seat, like the presence of God, uh, its significance was huge. And, and once a year, according to Leviticus 16, the high priest would go behind this thick curtain that separated the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle and the temple. You couldn't go in that presence. If you get it any other time of the year, you were struck dead. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring a bull and two goats, and the people would gather together. He would, he would sacrifice in order to purify himself and to be cleansed. He would take off his high priestly robes and put on a white robe that represented righteousness and purity. He would sacrifice the bull, and then he would take blood of the bull, and he would go behind that curtain, and he would sprinkle it before the mercy seat of God, because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission and forgiveness of sins. And then he would come back out and he would repeat it with a goat. There were two goats and they would cast lots. And on the one goat, they, he would place his hands and he would pray. And he symbolically would place upon that one goat all the sins of the people. And then they would drive that scapegoat, as where we get the term, they would drive that scapegoat out into the wilderness where it would be destroyed by wild animals and such. The other goat he would sacrifice and go back again into the holy place and sprinkle that blood and atone for the sins. Well, an interesting thing happens in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew 27 that when Jesus gave up his spirit and he dies, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, the earth shook, and the rocks were split. When Jesus died, something incredible happened. Literally, this curtain was ripped apart. And the significance of that was what? The barrier between humans and the creation and the creator has now forever been eradicated because of what Jesus did on the cross. He has spiritually torn that barrier apart. And by bringing and dying for us and making atonement for us, he reconciles us to God. And as verse 20 says, as a result, we can now boldly enter into heaven's most holy place. All because of Jesus and that sacrifice. And verse 21, and since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, and now he even enforces it more, reinforces it, let us go right into the presence of God. Hear that. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, loneliness, folks, and isolation. 
It is eternally healed when we go right into the presence of God. Our deepest loneliness is destroyed and eradicated by Jesus, and the isolation, the fear, the sense of worthlessness that we may even feel after following and, and, and giving our allegiance to Christ and becoming a Christian, those times in our lives when we go through deep valleys and we feel loneliness and wonder, where is God? These scriptures tell us those feelings can be taken care of and healed when we enjoy this royal right that we now have as God's children to come into the presence of God through prayer and fellowship. You know, clearly, you know, King David, he, he enjoyed this royal right. This man who was persecuted and tried and was hunted with his life, he wrote these beautiful psalms, one of which you know so well, Psalm 23, and in it, verse 4, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are where? With me. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hey, can I ask you a question, church? When you go through difficult times, maybe you're going through a difficult time right now, a trial or a tribulation, do you feel lonely? Do you feel alone? Have you ever felt that way where you're going through a difficult time and rather than feeling this presence of God, you almost say, where are you, God? And you pray, and it feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the roof. And it certainly, it doesn't, you know, Psalm 23, verse 4, doesn't describe what you're experiencing. How do we explain this disconnect? And maybe there's times when you do definitely feel the presence of God, and it strengthens you, but there's other times you, you pray, and it's like, Father, 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 Father. You know, it's like it echoes. Where are you? I, I want us to understand something. There's an important condition in this verse. He says, let us go right into the presence of God. How? With sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. That's an important condition. Um, I, I regret to say that there have been long stretches in my life where I would pour out my heart to God because of pain and situations that I was going through, and it felt like nobody was home. And I went for long periods of time just feeling like I had been abandoned, lonely, isolated. Why was this happening? Why does this happen in our lives? Why, does it, why would it happen to me? And, and why did it hurt so much? What was going on is, you know, when you go into these types of times in your life and you're, you're crying out to God and you're coming, what do you need to come before God's presence? It's so often associated with the trial and tribulation. And sometimes these trials and tribulations, they don't make sense. You, you cannot rationally reconcile them with the goodness of God and the love of God. And, and so you begin to wonder, you, you don't understand why this is happening. Have you ever felt that way? And that's a critical time. Because when you begin to ask, why is this happening to me? On the heels of that comes a temptation. A temptation that I, I just gloriously failed where as a result, I doubted God's goodness to me. 
and his faithfulness and his love. I, and as I was not fully, I could not fully trust him because I was doubting his goodness and love towards me as evidenced in this situation that I'm experiencing. And that tension creates an issue. And you'll find yourself disconnected from the throne room of God. I, I will tell you, that is a miserable place to be. What loneliness is there? And I, you know, let me just say, there's hope. If you're there this morning, or maybe you're just hearing these words because there's something coming your way and you need to tuck it away for the future, um, the path to healing starts by coming before our Heavenly Father and confessing that this is exactly how you feel. It's living authentically before our God. Our first value of living authentically is so important. Coming before God and saying, I do not feel, I do not understand this. And you just pour your heart out to God. And whether it's the, the hurt, the loneliness, the anger, the frustration, these things that are in you, put them out before God. Begin to pray and ask for his grace. I know in my own life, all I could say, do is say, this is where I'm at, and God, I need you to show me that you're good, that you are faithful, so that I can trust you. That prayer is important, that time. is. This, this is how you get out of that type of a, of a time in your life, friend. You know, this, this isolation and loneliness that plagues humanity, it is the result it began when Adam and Eve in the garden, what did they do? They doubted God's goodness to them. Satan's temptation to them was nothing more than a call for them to doubt God's goodness towards them. And they bought it, and they took matters into their own hands, and they rejected God. Is this where you are maybe this morning? Do you have this isolation and you feel isolated from God and lonely and wonder where he's at? You know, you're going to continue to feel that way if you've never turned to Christ. You know, feeling connected to God, entering into the most holy place with God, communing with him and receiving that encouragement and that strength, it doesn't happen until we first bow the knee to Jesus Christ confess our sinfulness, confess our need for a Savior, as Jonathan talked about a few moments ago in the baptism of the, the girls and of Lauren, this, this need to come before God and say, this is who I am, forgive me, Lord Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. You will continue to feel lonely and isolated and medicate that loneliness and isolation in whatever way that you medicate it until you first give your life to Jesus Christ. But some of you, like me, are Christians feeling this way. Let me encourage you, if you are a child of God, don't let this doubt of God's goodness rob you. Deal with it. You have to deal with it. But well, I need to move on to the second application. Uh, uh, let me introduce it uh, with Martin Luther. You know, I love Martin Luther because when we talk about living authentically, he lived authentically. He put it out there. He didn't hide anything. He was blunt, sometimes maybe too blunt, by, definitely by our today's standards. But this is one of the things that he said. He said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. 
But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. What's he getting at here? He's getting at our second application. The first application, Jesus, right, he opens the throne room of heaven to us so that we can uh, have our deepest hurts and sorrows healed. The second application is in verses 23 to 25. Jesus wants us and biblical community with one another so that the power of the gospel can be personally and practically experienced. You know, in our text, there's some important words. They're important in this text. They're important throughout the New Testament. It's the little words, one another. When you come across the words, one another, you ought to perk up. Because when you read those words, one another, more often than not, it is describing biblical community this gospel community that we are to live in, and what it looks like in action. We we experience biblical community in various environments in in our church, and and even from the beginning. It was experienced in various environments. Obviously, when we come together in, in this corporate body, and we worship God together, and we celebrate our Lord Jesus Christ together, we are enjoying a form of biblical community with one another. And we fellowship and we talk and we catch up and we worship God and and all that takes place in this corporate body, biblical community is here. Biblical community is in our discipleship groups. This is a key thing that we emphasize in our church where instead of a big group of people where you can experience a kind of biblical community and, a, and a, a type of biblical community, there is a different flavor of community of, in this gospel-oriented type type of discipleship group, where it's fewer people, where you can love and be loved and know them and be known by them. And then even in our church, we go even smaller. We have groups of three and four people, triads and whatnot, where we are accountable to one another and we do life together, maybe at breakfast time before work, men with men and women with women, and we go deeper into each other's lives as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. Biblical community has a lot of different environments, but what's the point of it all? The point of all of this, folks, is not for us to build buildings and to do, you know, feel good about ourselves. The point is for us to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ, to become holy. Our holiness is God's major project. He's intending to grow us up, to make us more and more holy, to be transformed and to be more like Jesus Christ and the image of Jesus Christ so that the glory of Christ can come through us. And as Luther points out, we need each other for this. When we are lone rangering it and we're isolated and we're seeking to, to follow God on our own, it fails tremendously. And that's what Luther's getting at. He says, I need to come together with other believers so that my heart and my sanctification and my holiness is stirred up and it grows because when I'm on my own, what I find is man. I'm a wreck. I just translated 15th century, 16th century language into 21st century language. That's what that was. All right? You know, here's the interesting thing about it. Our individual 
holiness. I want you to hear this this morning. Our pursuit of individual holiness as people of, of God, it is actually a community project. Our, our search for individual holiness, it's a, com- a community project. Why? Because sin is dealt with, it's defeated, and holiness begins to grow in our life when it's brought out into the light of biblical community. We need this in our lives. We experience the gospel, and we grow in holiness in community because of what occurs in that environment. There are benefits to biblical community, and that's what these verses at the end of our text are getting at. And I want to give them to you this morning. There's four of them, and we're going to finish them up in the next 10 or so minutes. The, the first one is in verse 23. We, we get and we give We benefit in biblical community by by receiving sanctifying grace. Let us hold tightly, he says, without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. He's writing to people, and what is the assumption here? They are wavering. They're in the middle of trials and tribulations. Some of them are being persecuted and being challenged either by family or people in their society. They're being challenged by other ideas. And their faith is shaky. And they are wavering in their commitment to Christ. Newsflash. The same happens to all of us. And it will happen on a consistent basis in our lives. Trials and temptations and tribulations will come our way, and we will be tempted to waver, to doubt doubt God's word, to doubt his goodness. We will even sabotage our growth in holiness. Rare is the person. I I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm saying rare. I would like to say no one, but I haven't met everyone. But I can tell you, I've never met anyone. So I'm saying rare is the person who follows Christ, who does not waver at some point in their life and waver many times. When this happens to us, what do you do? What do you do? I know what I did for years. I hid it. I put up a mask. I pretended that everything was okay when everything was not okay. That's the wrong (laughs) response. The right response is to live authentically, to bring it out into the light of the gospel and the gospel community. When we waver, if we do not bring this out to our brothers and sisters in Christ within this gospel community, the end is disastrous. But when we bring it out into the light of the gospel community, you will find that you will receive the grace that you need through your brothers and sisters in Christ, through your faith being strengthened. You see, in community, we receive the grace of God to hold tight. We receive the insight that we need to deal with the struggles that we're having so that our faith is strengthened and we grow up. One of the benefits And why we should be connecting intentionally in biblical community is sanctifying grace. The second one I'm going to give you, I just want you to write down. 
Not going to talk about it, really. Not going to unpack it, because we have another value that's going to come here shortly that's all about the second one. The first one is sanctifying grace. The second one is sacrificial love. It's in verse 24. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So just, just kind of write that down, tuck it away in your memory, and we're going to come back to this concept. It's going to have its whole, it's an entire message just for this one. So let me give you the third one. Let's move on to the third benefit. Third benefit of biblical community, there's sanctifying grace, there's sacrificial love. Verse 25, the first half of it, it's sacred worship. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some who are among us, he says, are now doing. And we know from early church records, the Didache was one of the earliest writings that we have that this actually was a problem in more than one church where people were disengaging from the biblical community. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, when he says meeting together, is he talking about, you know, this environment, corporate worship, like on Sunday mornings? Or is he talking about, you know, like our small group, a discipleship group? You know, maybe they weren't coming to the corporate worship, or is he talking about, oh, they, they ignore us and they don't get together in our homes? Which one, which one do you think he's talking about? Is, he, is it the corporate worship, or is it the small group type of setting? Both, yes, exactly, both. Um, I want you to consider, for example, the lives, and, and we know this, consider the lives of the Christians in Acts chapter 2, right? What did they do? They gathered together, in Solomon's portico, like a large portion of the temple that could, where really thousands of people could stand and mill around. They gathered together and they listened and they were instructed by the apostles and they worshiped together in this public venue and other people saw them and people were converted. But we also know in Acts chapter 2 that they met together in their homes, they broke bread together, they talked about the apostles' teachings and what was being taught to them, they talked about it, discussed it, and they prayed and they evangelized their neighbors. We know this from Acts 2. We know this from other churches that were planted. Remember, a church was planted and, you know, oftentimes it just started with a small group of people. And where did they meet? They didn't have, they didn't, you know, do a building fund. They met in a home, typically. But in time, when that church would grow and get larger, what you found was that they began to gather together, like on Sunday mornings. Some churches were early in the morning. They would go outside the walls of the city to a private place, maybe in a meadow or down near the river, and they would have a corporate worship service. And they would sing, and they would hear the Word of God, and they would take up offerings to help the poor and the needy in their church. And then what did they do after that? They distributed into smaller groups. You see this model throughout the history of the church. And we know that when they gathered together as a big group like we do, they worshiped. And when they gathered together as a small group, what did they do? They worshiped. And both forms of worship is important. The worship that we do in here as we sing together, as we pray in unison together, and we're confessing our hearts and truth back to God, and we're glorifying God, Jesus does something in us through that environment. But I'm going to tell you, some of my deepest worship has also been in the discipleship group. 
when a group of men and women, we're in a circle and we are praying and coming into the presence of God and the holy place, and we are praying for one another, and we're praying for the kingdom of God, and we're lifting up the names of people who we want to see come to Christ. And I have tell you so many times, those situations and those environments have been some of the deepest worship I've ever been a part of. Both of them are needed. But what can't happen is for us to only worship by ourselves. It's important for us to worship as individuals in our daily quiet time, but we need each other. Have, have you ever walked out of the church like on a Sunday morning and said something like, man, I needed that. You ever done that before? You might have even come to church, not really wanting to come to church, but then something happens in us. The Spirit of God is here and He meets with us and we walk out and we go, wow, I needed that. I actually said something similar to that last week. Dan Henley brought a, a, just a wonderful sermon. And it was a sermon I needed to hear. And I was talking to somebody, and he said, what did you think? I said, man, it was wonderful. I needed to hear that so badly this morning. You ever done that? Yeah, we need this. Because the Bible tells us that we're two or three together, are gathered together in Jesus' name. There he is in the midst of us. When we, you know, I can sing in my car. And when I sing in my car, you know, I am awesome. <laughs> but what is really awesome is when I sing with you guys. When I sing with you guys, it is just a different spiritual, spiritually empowering experience. And we need this. And by the way, you guys have great voices. You make me sound good. But when we lift our voices together, I mean, have you, ever, have you ever felt that? Just where you just feel the presence of God comes over us in this church when we're singing and worshiping and praying together. This is indispensable for our growth in holiness. Biblical, biblical community, it provides us with sanctifying grace and with sacrificial love and sacred worship. One final one, succulent and sumptuous desserts right? No, that's not it. But, <laughs> but it is true. <laughs> I stopped by a, a small group uh, Wednesday night over in the Eastgate Cafe, and they had this wonderful loaf of, of fresh, hot banana nut bread. And I was walking through the foyer, and I smelled it. And I said, hmm, I need to check on that small group. <laughs> no, the, the last one here is in verse 25. It's simultaneous encouragement. At the end of verse 25, he says, but, so don't, don't neglect the meeting together as some, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Biblical community is so important to our growth in holiness because when we go through these times of struggle and doubt and temptation and tribulation and just the normal pain of life, having brothers and sisters in our lives who can encourage us It'll get you through that tough time. It'll help you to rely on Jesus. I mean, church, I totally understand what Luther was getting at. At home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. How many times has that happened because one of you at just the right time on a Sunday morning 
said words of encouragement to me or in a small group. I don't know where I would be without you guys. I love our church. I love you guys. I love our biblical community, and I am convinced. (laughs) Wow, what a mess I would be if I didn't have you in my life. I hope you feel the same way about your church. Lord Jesus, would you make us into this type of biblical community more and more where we can come before one another and we can take the mask off, we can share the pain that we're having. Lord, sometimes that pain and those feelings, it is ugly. Sometimes our wavering is severe doubt of you. But Lord, in our community, would you give us the the wisdom and the discernment to know how to encourage one another, to love one another, to strengthen one another so that we can experience the sanctifying grace that can only come from you. Lord Jesus, would you make us into this type of community so that those who you are drawing to yourself would smell and experience the gospel, they would sense it, they would be attracted to you through us. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.